I want to begin today by asking this question. Is there any real advantage to being a Christian? Now, those of us who are Christians would certainly say, yes, there is. When we die, we get to go to heaven. In fact, you're in Revelation 14. Go to chapter 21. I want to show you a verse here and in verse number 27 because that is the, the best thing about being a Christian. When we die, we do get to go to heaven and we get to be with God forever. But in Revelation 21, 27, it says, there shall by no means enter it. That's talking about heaven. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the only people who will be going to heaven are those of us who have repented of our sins. We have asked Jesus to come into our heart. We've trusted Him to save us. We've been born again. And so we're going to go to heaven because our names are in the Lamb's book of life. And so that is the ultimate advantage of being a Christian. But I guess my question today is, other than that, is there any real advantage to being a Christian? The last numbers I looked at said that in the world today, 30% of the population considers themselves, considers themselves to be Christians. 23% approximately are Muslim. 15% have no religious affiliation. Think about that. The third largest religion in the world is no religion. They're either atheist or agnostic, but they have no religious affiliation. Hindus make up 14% of the world's uh, population. 6% of people say they're Buddhist. And the Jewish population is less than 1%. And so we read these different numbers and we study these different religions and we wonder, is there any real advantage day in and day out, week in and week out, is there any real advantage to being a Christian? And the answer to that question is yes. Now, back in Revelation 14, which is where we had turned initially, I want to mention some things today that I think will encourage you. And I think when you leave today, you'll say, you know what, I was already glad that I'm I'm saved, but I'm even more glad now that I'm a Christian and that Jesus is living in my heart. First of all, Christians have an advantage in life. You see, when we think about Christians having an advantage over non-Christians, we think, well, yeah, we have an advantage when, when we get out into eternity, and we do, but we also have an advantage in life. Now, in chapter 14, beginning in verse number 11, this is where we left off last week. Remember the sermon last week where we read about the three angels that God sent from heaven to preach to those who were living on the earth who had not been saved yet during the tribulation? And these angels are saying, you better fear God. I preached a whole sermon last week about fearing God. What does that mean? And when these angels preached uh, the sermon, not everybody listened to them. And not everybody got saved. In fact, many did not. In verse number 11, it describes the unsaved. And it says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so those who have not been saved, we know, will end up in the lake of fire, where they will forever be punished for their sins. Remember, they have rejected Christ's death on the cross as payment for their sins, and so now they're having to pay the penalty themselves. But in verse 12, the focus changes from the unsaved to the saved. And now the Apostle John is telling us the first advantage that saved people have. And he said, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now notice that word patience. Here is the patience of the saints. That could be translated endurance, endurance, steadfastness, perseverance, 
the ability to keep on keeping on. What is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying that one of the things that identifies a Christian as being a true believer is that when we go through difficult times, we don't give up. We don't quit. Theologians call this the perseverance of the saints. Now, we're not saved because we persevere. We're saved because we trust Christ. But if we have truly trusted Christ, we will persevere because we are saved. It is one of the fruits, one of the characteristics of a true Christian. That if we have Jesus living in our heart, when we go through difficult times, we will not give up. We will not throw in the towel. We will not quit. We have, hey, Christians have problems. Non-Christians have problems. But when we have them, we're supposed to keep trusting God and keep moving forward. Back during the holiday weekend, I received word that a lady in our church, Sue Harris, some of you might know Sue and her husband, Roger. Sue works in our church office. They're wonderful people. And Sue's father has lived for years and years in Portland, Oregon. And maybe the day after Thanksgiving, uh, he died. And, and so Sue flew to Portland to be with her family and to take care of having her father's funeral. Well, Roger was not able to go on that trip because his mother has been sick for a long time and she's been in a facility here in the Houston area. And so he felt like he needed to stay and, and take care of his mom. And so it was already a sad enough situation that, that Sue's dad had died and now she's up there without Roger. Yesterday morning, I, I woke up and I started checking my phone and the text messages and I, I had a text message from Sue, and Sue said, John, you're never going to believe what's happened. She said, now Roger's mom has died. And she said, the timing of this is almost unthinkable to think that my dad would die, and within about 24 to 36 hours, now Roger's mom has died. And she said, I just, I just can't believe this has happened. But at the end of her text, and when I read this, I thought, obviously, uh, she's a Christian, and obviously she's trusting God, and that's how, even when our hearts are broken, this is how we should, this, is, this should be our theology. In the, at the end of Sue's text to me yesterday morning, she said this. She said, you know, John, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it. It seems unthinkable, but God knows what he's doing. And I thought, that's how a Christian is supposed to respond when we go through hard times. Situations, circumstances we don't like that are painful, but we say, you know what? God knows what He's doing, and I'm going to trust Him either way. We have in our church a family, Scott and Jamie Dobianski are faithful members of our church, and one of their daughters is a, is, a, is a sweet friend of mine. Her name is Kristen. I've known Kristen for about 25 years now. And Kristen has two sons. She has an eight-year-old boy named Mark. And she has a five-year-old son named Jake. Back on October the 4th, Jake, one night around their house, began to have a bad headache. And he started just acting in ways that weren't quite normal. Kristen knew something was wrong. And so she called an ambulance and the ambulance came to their house and got Jake and took him to the hospital. And they began to run the test. And when they did, they discovered that one of the major blood vessels in his brain had ruptured and he was bleeding in his brain. Very serious situation. So he was taken from that hospital by helicopter, he was life flighted to Texas Children's down in the medical center, and they did an emergency surgery on him. It was a very, very serious situation. You might remember us mentioning this even in the morning services and certainly at our prayer and praise service at night. We were mentioning it, and people were praying, not only at First Baptist, but all around. People were praying for Jake that somehow God would save and spare his life, that, that somehow that ruptured blood vessel could be dealt with. I want to show you a picture of what Jake looked like when he was first in the hospital, and this was the 
really the day, I guess, after his first surgery. He's completely out. You can tell that. Stayed in Texas Children's for 18 days. And toward the end of those days, he began to recover. He began to get his strength back. And he was able, actually, to come home. On November the 21st, the family had to take him back to Texas Children's so they could do another surgery, this time to actually... Uh, repair the problem so that he would be okay going forward. And so they did the surgery. Many of us had prayed. The church had prayed for Jake in that surgery as well. And thankfully it went well. And I want to show you a picture of how well that surgery went. Look at Jake now post-surgery. That's what he looked like after the surgery. And I wanted to show those today because I thought, you know, the people in the church, many have prayed for Jake. And, and sometimes when we pray about something, we don't always see, you know, did that prayer get answered? How did that story ever end up? Well, that's how that story ended. Now, I was thinking earlier in the week, if a picture's worth a thousand words, then having somebody live and in person has got to be worth a million words, right? And so I talked to Kristen and we worked it out for Jake to be here today. Jake, can you come up here and show these people how well you're doing, buddy? Bring your brother Mark with you and your mom can come. Look at this fella right here. Look how good he looks. <laughs> Come here, Jake. I, I saw this fella playing out there in the uh, hallway before the service, and I said to the family, I think he is too healed. He is too healthy because he was running around. Now, Mark has been the ideal big brother. When Kristen had to call the ambulance to come to their house, she was inside with Jake. And so Mark was out there on the curb flagging the ambulance driver down so he could come help his brother. Don't they look good? Answered prayer. So we're so proud of them. Thank you guys so much. He, he is well and doesn't even know that he, he thinks this thing they've put on the, his head where they had to cut his hair and do the surgery and all the staples and everything, he thinks that is quite the badge of honor. And so it really is. But Jake, Mark, Kristen, thank you so much. The point I'm making today is that in life, even when we're going through hard times, we have an advantage over those who don't know Jesus because he helps us to keep on and he helps us not to quit but to persevere in our faith. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're probably thinking, John, that's a great story and they had a happy ending. People prayed, a miracle took place, he's healthy and he's healed. But you might be thinking, well, what about my family member I prayed for? We prayed too. The church prayed and they died. So how do you explain that? If Christians have an advantage, where, what happened to that advantage? Well, that leads me to my second point, and that is this. Christians have an advantage not only in life, we have an advantage in death. That's the thing about us. It's not just with living, but also when we die, we have an advantage. Now look in verse 13. Notice how John describes this. John said, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Isn't that an interesting word? He's describing Christians who die. He didn't say we're cursed. He didn't say we're finished. He didn't say it's over. He said we're blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And so we're blessed because when we die, we go to heaven and we're with God and we go to a place of peace and we go to a place of rest. The reason that Christians are blessed when we die is because Christians don't really die. The only thing that will die is our body. Our spirit will not die. Our soul will live forever. Jesus said in John chapter 11, the person who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, certainly bodies die. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that these bodies we have are like a tent. 
When we get to heaven, we get a new body, and our new body's a house. So what happens when a Christian dies? We move out of our tent, and we move into our new house. We move out of that which is temporary and into that which is permanent and eternal in the heavens with God. And so bodies die, but people don't die. I'll tell you a story. I hadn't planned on telling this, and at 9.30 I told it, so I'll tell it here at 11. I hope I get it right. But there was a man who lived in London, England years ago. He had a strange name. It was Solomon Pease. Last name, P-E-A-S, like the vegetable. And he was getting up in years. In fact, he had gotten sick, and he knew that his physical death wasn't far away. And he knew that after he died, he wouldn't be on earth to comfort his family and tell them that he was okay. And he wanted them not just to you know, mourn and and grieve endlessly. He wanted them to rejoice in the fact that he was in heaven with God. And so he thought, what can I do now so that after I have died, I can help my family to laugh and not just cry? So he went down to the funeral home and he met with the director and he said to him, he said, listen, I want to choose my headstone for my burial plot and I want to put a poem that I've written on this tombstone if that would be okay. And the funeral director said, well, absolutely, it's your headstone you could put whatever you want to on there and so he wrote a little poem and had it put on the tombstone and sure enough time came and he died and his family went to the cemetery to to pay their respect and they they saw the poem that he had written and I won't try to quote this right here's what it said under this ground and beneath these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease but Pease ain't here it's just the pod Pease shelled out and went to God. Isn't that good? And so he was saying to his family, hey, I've just shelled out of here, and I've gone to heaven, and I've gone to be with God, and so we don't have to worry about anything. That's why John says here, uh, or the person who spoke to John said, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It's not that we won't die if we live long enough, and Jesus doesn't come first. We're going to die, but the only thing that will die is our body. Our spirit and our soul will immediately go to heaven. Absent from the body, the Bible says, present with the Lord. We'll close our eyes one moment in death. We'll open them again and we'll be in heaven and everything will be perfect. Just like the blink of an eye, it will not be long at all. I was interested as I was thinking about the way Christians die versus the way non-Christians die. Because we're all going to die, but we die differently. And so I was interested to, to, to read what certain non-Christians and certain Christians said uh, on their deathbed just before they died. Most of us are familiar with the philosopher Aristotle, and we know the contributions he made to the world of philosophy, but Aristotle was not a believer. And when he was on his deathbed, here's what he said, I was born in sin, I have lived unhappily, I die in doubt. Cause of causes, pity me. And so Aristotle is dying in doubt, no hope, and he's asking to be pitied. A famous politician from many years ago whose last name was Beaconsfield, he said this on his deathbed. Youth is a mistake. Manhood a struggle. Old age a regret. This is a hopeless way to die. A well-known millionaire of years ago named Jay Gould on his deathbed said, I suppose I'm the most miserable man on earth. What was he saying? He was saying, all my life I've worked, I've accumulated, I've invested, and I've got all this money. But now that I've come to the end of my time on earth, that money's doing me no good. 
And the thing that I thought would make me happy has now only increased my misery because upon my death, I'll leave it to somebody else and it does me no good at all. He said, I'm the most miserable man on earth. Now, let's think about Christians and how certain Christians have died. <clears throat> Charles Dickens, the great novelist, this time of year we think about the play A Christmas Carol. Dickens wrote that. Here were Dickens' words on his deathbed. I commit my soul to the mercy of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I exhort my dear children to humbly try to guide themselves by the teachings of the New Testament. And so on his deathbed, Dickens was not afraid. He knew he was trusting Christ and he knew he was about to go to heaven. You've heard us talk about the great preacher, the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. The most influential preacher of all time. For many years, pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. He is the most read preacher in the world today. Back when he was pastoring his church, he would preach on Sundays. from a. He didn't preach from a manuscript. He preached from a loose outline, a rough outline. But on Mondays, he would take the sermon that he had preached the day before, and he would write it out in manuscript form. They would print it. And there in London, the next week, those sermons would be sold for one penny. Now, that's about what you think these sermons are worth, right? About one penny. Well, that's what they were getting for his sermons back then. And he did that every Sunday. And as the years went by, there were more and more sermons out there. And today, there's a 66-volume set of Spurgeon sermons that I have, my dad has, most preachers have those. It's the greatest uh, resource of sermons in the world. But when Spurgeon was a young man, maybe two or three years after he had been saved, he got saved when he was about 12 or 13. And a few years after that, he began to have doubts about his salvation. And so he went to his uncle, who was a pastor, and he said, Uncle, I don't think I'm saved. And the uncle said, well, Charles, why not? He said, well, when I think about death, it frightens me. It scares me. And I think if I were truly saved, that death wouldn't scare me, that I would be able to think about it and I would have peace. And so the uncle was trying to discern whether or not his nephew was truly saved. And so he said, now Charles, let's just think about this for a moment. He said, when you had your experience at that church on that day, when you made your profession of faith, he said, did you truly repent of your sins? He said, yes, I did. He said, did you ask Christ to save you? He said, yes, I did. He said, did you trust Christ to save you? He said, yes, I did. And he said, okay, Charles, then I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, you're saved. He said, the fact that you are afraid to die doesn't mean that you're not saved. And Charles said, well, what does it mean? And the uncle said, it means that you're not dying. Because if you were dying, God would give you dying grace. But here you are living dying is out there in the future. You're not dying now, you're living, and you're trying in your imagination to imagine what it's going to be like to die, but you're doing that hypothetical game minus the grace that God would give you in that moment to die. He said, the fact that you're afraid to die doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that you're not dying. If you're trusting Christ, you are truly saved. You say, well, how'd that play out in Spurgeon's life? Well, let me read you the words that he spoke on his deathbed. The most influential preacher since the the Apostle Paul said this, tranquil and happy, though very weak. My theology is very simple. I can express it in a few words, and they are enough to die by. Jesus died for me. 
And that was the great Spurgeon on his deathbed. At perfect peace because he was trusting Christ who had died on that cross to pay for his sins. Perhaps you've heard of a well-known preacher named Dwight L. Moody. He was the Billy Graham before Billy Graham. God used him as an evangelist, a revivalist, to shake two continents for Jesus Christ. He preached all across North America and he preached all through Europe. And thousands of people were saved. It is reported that on his deathbed, Moody spoke these words that are some of the most famous words in all of church history. Now, before I give you the quote, Moody evidently was thinking about the 23rd Psalm. Evidently. He was evidently thinking about that fourth verse where David said, thinking of his death, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Evidently, he was thinking about that, especially verse 4 where David said, the valley of the shadow of death. Because Moody, as he was ebbing, his life was ebbing away and as he was about to go to heaven to meet God. Here's what Moody said just before he died. He said, there is no valley here. Think about that. The presence of God was so real in Moody's life. He said, there's no valley here. Life is receding. Heaven is opening. This is my coronation day. And he closed his eyes and he went to heaven. Another preacher that you may not be as familiar with, if you're an old timer, you might. His name was R.G. Lee. For many years, he pastored the great Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And his most famous sermon by far was a sermon called Payday Someday. He preached that sermon thousands of times, talking about how one of these days, those who have rejected Christ, who have refused his death on the cross as the payment of their sins, a payday is coming, a judgment day is coming, and they'll have to give an account and they'll be punished for their sins. R.G. Lee was not only a wonderful pastor and preacher, but he was a wonderful husband and a wonderful man. He was very close to his wife, and his name of affection for her, instead of calling her by her first name, he always called her Lady Lee. And Miss Lee had died sometime before R.G. Lee had gotten sick, and so he had lived as a widower for those years. And his life went on, and he got very sick. And history tells us that on his deathbed, some friends... To us, well-known preachers, but to him, friends were gathered around. Billy Graham, Adrian Rogers, who succeeded him at Bellevue Baptist, and others were gathered around Dr. Lee as he was dying. And he was coming in and out of consciousness. He was awake and he was asleep and he was awake and he was asleep. And his friends were praying with him and encouraging him and reading scripture to him. And on one of these times, as he was coming in and out of consciousness, he opened his eyes and a big smile came on his face. And here's what R.G. Lee said on his deathbed. We're talking minutes before he died. He said, I just saw heaven. And I just saw Lady Lee. And he said, if I had only known how beautiful heaven is, I would have preached that thousands more could have been saved. And he closed his eyes and he died. And he went to heaven in perfect peace. As I mentioned His successor there at Bellevue was a man you have heard of. At least you've heard my dad and I talk about Adrian Rogers, one of the greatest pastors of our generation. Adrian pastored Bellevue Baptist Church for 32 years. I can hardly look at his picture without getting a little bit emotional because it was Adrian Rogers and my own father 
that God used in my life to bring me to the full assurance of my salvation. Adrian had struggled with that as to whether he was truly saved in his life, and he got it settled. And when he shared his testimony coupled with something that happened with my father, that was what God used to lead me to truly trust Christ and bring me to the full assurance of my salvation. In October of 2005, I flew to Florida, and I went to a one-day preaching conference that Adrian taught. And it was the best thing I've ever been through. I'm thankful for my formal training. I'm thankful for the two seminaries I was able to attend and all the preaching classes I had. But I believe I learned more about preaching sitting under Adrian Rogers for one day than I did in all the seminary classes just because he was coming so much out of the heart. And he had done this for 50, he had preached for about 50 years. I got there early that day for the, for the class. There were about 200 of us uh, preachers there. I sat as close as I could get to Adrian without being annoying and without being too close. I thought if maybe some of that favor and anointing would just rub off on me. And so I sat there and I listened to him teach all day and it was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. How to prepare a sermon, how to illustrate a sermon, how to get a theme and so on. Everything, it, was just, it was just so good. And Anyway, when the conference was over, I flew back the next day to Houston and went back to my life. Adrian and his wife Joyce stayed in Florida and he preached that Sunday morning at First Baptist Naples. I later learned that it was while he was there that he contracted pneumonia. The upper respiratory infection that turned into pneumonia. Adrian had been battling colon cancer. He had flown to Houston, been at MD Anderson uh, for time. In fact, my dad had, con- had offered to loan him his car while he was here and as it turned out, they didn't need it. But anyway, because he went to Naples and taught, because he was there preaching that weekend, He got an infection that turned into pneumonia. Five weeks after that preaching conference, Adrian Rogers was in a hospital uh, and he was dying. Pneumonia had filled his lungs and so the doctors had gathered around. His wife, kids were there. Uh, His successor at Bellevue, by this time he had retired as pastor, Steve Gaines was in the room. And so the doctors explained and said to Adrian, said, Dr. Rogers, you're having great difficulty obviously breathing. We're going to hook you up to a ventilator that will make breathing easier for you. But the only thing about this ventilator is once we hook you up, we can't unhook you, so you will never be able to speak again. We don't know how long you'll last on the ventilator, but you'll not be able to speak again. And so is there anything that you would like to say to your family before we put this machine on you? And Adrian Rogers, in classic Adrian style, he said, yes, there's one thing I would like to say to my family. Of course, I'm sure he told them that he loved them and all that. But here were Adrian Rogers' last words before they put that ventilator. If you've ever heard him preach on the radio, he still preaches. He's still on the radio. He's like Abel. Though he's dead, he still speaks. Every day at 3.30 on 105.7. If I'm in my car, if where I can, I've turned it on. Adrian had this beautiful, deep voice. Just God had given him a great voice. And before they hooked the ventilator on him, here were his last words. He said to his family, I am at perfect peace. And they hooked the ventilator on him, and he closed his eyes not long after that, and he died. And so that says to me that Christians have an advantage not only in life, but we have an advantage in death. And we have nothing to fear when we think about death. Let me give you a couple of scripture verses that will be good. In Psalm 116 in verse 15, notice what it says. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of of his saints. Look at that verse on the screen. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When God thinks about our physical death, God doesn't look at that as a sad experience, but a happy time. We're leaving earth to go to heaven to be with him. Not only that, in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 and 2, these are two of my favorite verses on death. Notice what it says. The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. 
merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. You know, so many times when we lose a loved one, we say, God, why did you let them die? Why did you not stop that accident? God, why didn't you heal their disease? God, why did you let them die? That's just a human of us. Any of us would do that. But God is saying, listen, I know you have questions and I know your heart is broken, but stop to consider that your loved one who was saved has gone from an evil earth to a perfect heaven. They've gone from a place of strife and stress and tension to a place of rest in heaven with me. And so the point is, Christians have an advantage, not only in life, but also in death. But not only that, Christians have an advantage in judgment. Did you know that everyone, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Jew, atheist, agnostic, or some other religion, all of us will one day stand before God in judgment. Now, the good news is, those of us who are saved, we will not be judged for our sins. Why? Because our sins were all placed on Jesus Christ. And when He died on the cross, God judged Him. God punished Jesus, not for His sins. He didn't have any sins. But He took the punishment for our sins. And so when we as Christians stand before Christ, we will be judged, not for our sins, but for our service. How well we have served the Lord. If our motives were pure, if we did it out of a heart to honor Him and not to promote our own cause. So we'll be judged for that. At that judgment, we'll either be rewarded or we won't be rewarded. But we will not be punished or judged for our sins. But for non-Christians, they will. And this is why, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 14 through 20. This is why it is so important that you know for sure that you're saved. And it's why it's so important that those of us who are saved do everything we can to help everybody come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now look in verse 14. And this is an interesting passage talking about the judgment that non-believers will one day face because of their unforgiven sins. John said, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, that is a victor's crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. A sickle is a, uh, is a tool that was, it's a harvesting tool with a sharp blade and a wooden handle, and they would use it Back in Bible days, and in some places maybe even today, to cut grain. And so that's the image here, talking about how non-Christians one day, there will be a swift judgment for all their sins. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, that's Jesus, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. He's judging non-Christians. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Just like they would crush grapes to make wine, now that, that the grapes are being, uh, it's an image of God's judgment. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Back in Bible times, and even some places still today, grapes would be placed in a, in a place, in a, in a, like in an instrument, in a, 
like a, a trough type thing, and people would go in and they would stomp the grapes. And when they stomped the grapes, the juice from the grapes would splatter. And so that is the image that is being used here, not for grapes now, but for those who've never been saved. Verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This is a reference to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19 that we'll hopefully get to sometime in February, okay? But what it's saying is at the Battle of Armageddon, when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, who will he be battling? He will be battling those who are wanting to fight him, led by the Antichrist. And so the Battle of Armageddon will take place. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands will be in that battle, and Jesus will destroy them. And the Scripture is saying that battle will be so bloody that blood will run, we, don't, we read this 1,600 1, furlongs, that means nothing to us. It's 184 miles. So blood will flow from northern Israel, where the Battle of Armageddon will take place, all the way down to the south, 184 miles. So much blood, so much bloodshed, and it will be up to the horse's bridle, four feet tall. It's, it's just unthinkable that that much blood would be flowing. And you say, well, John, I don't understand why if God is a good, loving, kind, merciful God, why is he going to judge these people? He's judging them because God is not only loving and kind, but he's holy and righteous. And he demands our sins be paid for. And you think, well, I just think God will somehow go easy on their sins. Listen to me, friend. If God were ever going to go easy on sins, he would have gone easy on sins when sins were placed on Jesus Christ. But if God made Jesus who took our sins, suffer and bleed and die, then those who have rejected Christ will face a similar death. And so what I'm saying is, as Christians, we have an advantage in judgment because we're not going to face that. We're not going to stand before God to be judged for our sins. In fact, in the out, I don't know if I put this on the outline or it'll be on the screen, but think about this sentence. If you know Jesus personally, then he will never judge you for your sins. He would judge you for your service, whether your motives were good. He'll judge me. Part of my calling is preaching. He will judge me for how faithfully I prepared. He will judge me for what my motive is in doing this. What is my motive? To please God? To honor God? To impress you? Or is my motive pure or am I a hypocrite? Well, it's all coming out at that judgment. But it's not a judgment for be punished for sins, to be rewarded or to not be rewarded. But the point I'm making today is that as Christians, we will never be judged for our sins. If that makes you happy, say amen. Now, you close your Bible. We're just about finished. We're finished with that part of it. Do you remember back three months or so ago, I got on this little thing where I was reading poems out here a couple of Sundays in a row. And on the second week that I did that, I promised the audience, I said, I promise no more poems for the rest of this year. Remember I said that? But then I left myself an out. I said, but when we get to Christmas, if I feel led, I'm going to read a Christmas, I'll do a Christmas poem. And you graciously agreed because at that time you thought Christmas is so far away you know, we'll just let him do that. Well, when I was finishing this sermon on Monday, uh, or when I was starting this sermon on Monday, I came to the end and I thought, you know, I did a poem back in 2010 that would really be a good way to end this sermon. It's called When Judgment Comes. And so I know it's not a Christmas poem, but we're still in the Christmas season. So hopefully I can read this and not have gone against my promise to you back a few months ago. But nonetheless, this poem... It's not long. It's not even necessarily good. 
But it, maybe, maybe you'll think it's good, but it's really not that great. But I think it describes, I know it describes how I feel when I think about how thankful I am that I'll never be judged for my sins because of what Jesus did. So let me read it to you, then we'll stop. Judgment is coming to this world someday, but before judgment comes, I'll be taken away. I'll be up in heaven with Jesus above, saved by His mercy and wrapped in His love. The judgment that comes to this earth at that time will be sudden and dreadful, but it will not be mine. For Jesus was judged on that cross long ago, and that is the only judgment that I'll ever know. My sins He's forgiven, my past He's erased, my home is in heaven, I'm saved by His grace. When I think of the judgment that one day will fall, I'm thankful that Jesus has answered my call. When he saved and forgave me and set my soul free, that meant there would never be judgment for me. So as you look to the future, what pops in your head? Are you filled with thanksgiving or clouded with dread? If fear fills your heart as you sit there tonight, then call out to Jesus and make your soul right. Please let him forgive you and make your life new. Then before judgment falls, he'll come rescue you. When things on this earth start falling apart, you'll be very glad you gave Jesus your heart. You'll never experience the great tribulation. You'll be up in heaven at the great celebration. So think what I've said and turn from your sin. Jesus knocks at your heart and he wants to come in. And if you'll invite him to come in today, your soul he will save and your sins wash away. And then when the judgment comes to this earth, You'll be up in heaven because of the new birth. Your outlook will change. There'll be no more fear. Your heart will proclaim that Jesus lives here. Amen. And so what I'm saying is, well, thank you. Thank you. You make me feel better. You make me feel better, Beth. But the point is, hey, those of us who are saved, we're never going to have to be judged for our sin. Put that last sentence up there. I want you to see that again before we have the invitation. And then I want to give you a chance today to, to make your decision for Jesus Christ if you never had. Look at that. If you know Jesus personally, then he will never judge you for your sins. The question is, do you know Jesus personally? Are you saved? Are you sure that you're saved? And if not, why not during these next few moments, just pray a simple prayer. I'll help you pray it. And just get that settled so that you can know beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus Christ is living in your heart. Amen. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed, there were some who came forward in the first service making their decisions. And I just can't imagine today with this many people in a room that there would not be some who need to to make a decision for Jesus Christ. If you say, John, I'm just not sure that I'm saved. I don't have that, that peace and assurance. Would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus. You and I both know that I have sinned, and Lord, I'm truly sorry. I ask you now to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Just tell him that, friend. That'll settle it right there. I trust you, Jesus, with all my heart. I don't look for a sign. I don't ask for some special feeling. I stand on your word that if I would trust you, you would save me. 
pray this. Say, Lord, during this next song, give me the courage to walk to the front to share this with the minister so that I will have confessed you openly and publicly before men. Friend, I know that's not easy to do, but when you take that, if you'll take that first step, God and His angels will help you with step two, three, four, and five. He'll help you with the first step, but that's, that's really your choice. That you've, got to, you've got to get moving. If you'll take that step in faith, you'll just find that it's like the angels will just escort you down here to the front of this church. Others of you here today, you've, you've been saved before today, but you need to come for your baptism. Get that scheduled. So we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Others here today, you've already done those things, but you feel God leading you to join our church. Talked to a man between services. He said, John, my wife and I and our kids, this is our fifth week to come here. And we're just feeling like this may be where God has for us to be our church home. Well, today you may feel the same way. And, and if you know that this is the place, during this next song, you just come share that with us. We'll pray with you. We'll take you to the decision room, give you some literature so you can grow spiritually and so you can find your connection a group and your place to get involved here in the church. But Father, I pray during the next song that there will be a freedom and that people will come make their decisions for you. In Christ's name, we pray and all the people said.